deficit spending on BC Budget Day. We need to be making these investments. How BC's bounce back from the pandemic will only partially offset the cost of recovery. Year-round wildfire planning. Making sure that forests and lands are protected before wildfire season. New tactics to make sure a tragedy like Lytton never happens again. And a local singer hits the right key. From ACDC Tribute Band to the ABCs of typewriter repair. Hobbies that rock. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with breaking details of a serious incident at a Surrey High School. Two students have been injured in what witnesses describe as a stabbing. Surrey RCMP say they were called to Lord Tweedsmere in Cloverdale to a reported stabbing on the school grounds. Two victims were located and taken to hospital in stable condition with non-life-threatening injuries. One teen has been taken into custody. It's believed this stemmed from a dispute between the two groups. And if anyone has any information, RCMP would like to speak to you. And Vancouver police say they are investigating no fewer than 60 6-0 assaults over the weekend. A disturbing number of them unprovoked stranger assaults. One of the attacks on a man and woman near Andy Livingston Park. The two were walking near Crosstown Elementary when a man punched the male victim in the head for no reason. He wasn't seriously hurt and they reported the assault to police. Vancouver police say it was a very busy long weekend. But we're looking at uh, about 22 of those 60 cases being um, uh, uh, random or, or potentially involving strangers, or at least people that did not know each other. So um, anytime we have th those kind of numbers, it's, it's very concerning to us. The suspect in the attack near Andy Livingston Park is described as a white man, 5 feet 9, about 25 years old, with a shaved head and a stocky build. Well, the B.C. government released the budget today, and between now and the next election, it will be spending a lot more than it collects. Over the next three years, B.C.'s annual deficits will total $12.9 billion, and the debt will grow by 37 percent, or just over $34 billion. So where is all that borrowed money going? As Richard Zussman reports, the bulk of the money will be on capital spending, building things at a pace this province has never seen before. British Columbia's economy is bouncing back and the province is getting ready to spend, spend, spend on childcare, COVID-19 contingencies, and like never before, building a record-breaking $13.65 billion in capital spending in the upcoming year. If we're going to get a handle on, on climate change, if we're going to get a handle on managing our po population growth um, in Lower Mainland and, and elsewhere, then we need to be making these investments. That includes major projects for 2022-23, the Patello Bridge replacement, $300 million, the Broadway Subway, $411 million, other transit projects including the Surrey-Langley Subway extension, $290 million, and $283 million for Highway 1 work to the Alberta border, an extra $91 million for the far-from-ready Massey Tunnel replacement, and not enough details and timelines for some. We were hoping to see further um, measures and, and initiatives around driving infrastructure, which would have also driven job create creation and also helped to attract investment into our region. With big spending comes big debt. 
the debt growing from $91.55 billion in 2021-22 to $105 billion.43 next year, and then $117.3 billion the year after. Our debt burden remains manageable for a province of our size with the taxpayer debt-to-GDP ratio remaining below 25%. Well, the government has absolutely no plans to balance the budget because it's using the cloud of the pandemic to go on a debt-fueled spending binge for years to come. The province also investing $1.5 billion in the long-term rebuild of the Coquihalla and other roadways destroyed by floods, $500 million already spent, and no final cost. There's still numbers coming in uh, in terms of understanding exactly what the costs are going to be. I'll have more to say about that in the next number of weeks as we hear uh, exactly what it's going to cost. And what we saw in the Coke could, help, could happen anywhere in the province, so we expected to see a bit more of a rehab program for them. The NDP is hoping all this spending, to put it into their words, will lead to a better BC along the newly built road. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with uh, a little more on this massive capital spending. Keith, let's take a, a look a little further down the road and, and where we're heading, really. Yeah, and it's not just one year, Chris. It's three years of record spending levels of capital investment. We're talking about uh, infrastructure and places like schools hospitals and such. So here's how it breaks down uh, by sector. So the education community, again, big benefactors here, K-12 schools, $3.1 billion. Post-secondary institutions, more than $4 billion. Health facilities, more than $8.5 billion. And bridges and roads, $7.2 billion. A massive amount of spending over three years. As I say, it's a record. I asked Finance Minister Selena Robinson about that today, and she also talked about the debt being manageable. It's $125.7 billion, but it's doubled in 10 years. I asked can this be sustained going forward? Here's your reply. Right now, we know that, that we need hospitals, we need schools. We know that we need um, to invest in, 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 um, in SkyTrain, for example, south of, the, south of the Fraser. It's been 30 years, and it's the fastest-growing community. Um, so if we're going to get a handle on, on climate change, if we're going to get a handle on managing our po population growth um, in Lower Mainland and, and elsewhere, then we need to be making these investments. So what comes with all these investments, this massive amount of capital spending, is the creation of jobs. There's going to be a lot of jobs associated with these projects going forward, just in time for the next provincial election a couple of years from now. Uh, that will be after people witnessing the building of sky trains and roads and bridges and hospitals and schools. It's a politically timed uh, effort here that NDP clearly hoping pays off for them come the next time the voters head to the polls. Spending on big projects and elections often go hand in hand, as we've seen. Thanks very much, Keith. Well, the government says it is committed to affordable housing across B.C., but the hot housing market we're experiencing now is having a major impact on the provincial purse. As Kylie Stanton reports, growing property transfer taxes are padding the province's revenues. At the same time, they are pledging to do something about that housing crunch. The government says it can't afford to wait. And we aren't. As more and more British Columbians can't afford a roof over their heads. We have 32,000 uh, units that are in process somewhere. So they might be in the planning stages, they might be in, under construction, they might be open. So it's a significant number of homes that are, that are coming online. But it's the prices that continue to be the problem. 
at least for buyers. As for the government, the hot housing market is playing a large role in the province's financial bounce back in the wake of COVID-19. Two years ago, the property transfer taxes accounted for just $1.6 billion in revenues, jumping to $2.1 billion last year, and in 2021-22, amounting to a staggering $3.25 billion. What some say has become a double-edged sword for the NDP, largely elected on the promise of making housing more affordable for British Columbians. I think we don't have a government that right now is wanting to take the measures to actually cause home prices to stall in order to restore affordability for all so that earnings have a chance to catch up. This year's budget builds off prior commitments with more than $1.2 billion a year for the next three years to build and create affordable housing units. But beyond that, not much is being promised. And the $400 renter's rebate laid out back in 2017 still has yet to materialize. Affordability in housing is impacting every single person in this province, and we do not see in this budget, meaningful, tangible steps to address that. While it's clear there's no magic bullet when it comes to the market, the minister responsible for housing, David Eby, has suggested the province may take away certain zoning powers from municipalities in order to speed up the building process. In a statement, he said, it's clear the status quo is not working. Lot designs, for example, is not acceptable in the midst of a housing crisis. But of course, this all takes time. And with an estimated 36 years to save for a down payment in Vancouver, time may be all any prospective home buyers have. Kylie Stanton, Global News. This government's original promise of $10 a day childcare isn't going to happen, at least not in this budget, but it is promising $20 a day childcare by the end of this year. Finance Minister Selena Robinson says new social programs take time to come together. She also says the province will create 40,000 childcare spaces over the next seven years and will fund more inspectors to make sure they're up to standard. Advocates say despite missing the $10 a day target, it's a good day for childcare in this province. This is the year I think parents are really going to see an impact around affordability and we're going to start to see some serious expansion. So um, good news. Due to a federal commitment as well, the province has allocated $284 million for child care total. And the B.C. budget is revealing more details about a fundamental shift in the way the province deals with the ever-growing threat from wildfires. As Ted Chernecki reports, the finance minister is holding up one of last summer's rare success stories as an example of how communities can be saved. Wildfire season in B.C. has been starting earlier and lasting longer to the point it's almost a year-round effort now. And after today's budget, it will be. $600 million to keep B.C. wildfire services going year-round to deal with not just fires, but all weather-related calamities. Case in point, B.C. had just sent many firefighters back home when November's devastating atmospheric rivers hit. This was a perfect example that wildfire is well-positioned to respond to these crises. Um, and again, mitigation, you know, being proactive, making sure that forests and lands are protected 
before wildfire season. And that's why we think a year-round all-hazard approach. Scientists believe there's no going back. This is a paradigm shift in the way we live, play, and pay in a climate-changing world. $600 million is welcome, but it is just a start. Just recently, California um, announced an investment of $50 billion into into proactive wildfire management. Of course, California does have eight times BC's population, so we're left with making better use of the resources we do have, and one of them is better coordination. But if you can maintain that that real knowledge base of people who are highly trained, who are, you know, the front line of fire every year, that's a huge leg up for the next year. In the off-season, it's all about mitigating. Logan Lake stands out as a model for the kinds of things that community did to successfully stave off the flames. When the Tremont Creek wildfire threatened the community of Logan Lake, we saw what it meant to be a fire-smart community and the difference it can make in an emergency. BC spent $19 billion in the last 20 years getting ready for a major earthquake that may or may not happen in our lifetime. Meanwhile, wildfires and floods are happening now and will most certainly continue. Climate change disasters can be interrelated in what scientists call disturbance cascades. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Food for thought. Inflation is driving up the price of just about everything, and that includes groceries. The transformative impact that's having at the dinner table in just over a minute. The leaders of the illegal Ottawa protests in court. Pat King's argument for bail and who's putting up the $50,000 to back him. Coming up on the News Hour. And the leader of a rock tribute band has a hit with his part-time gig. How he got into typewriter repair later on the News Hour. Right now, though, Canadians are changing their shopping habits in the face of rising food costs. A new poll out from the Angus Reid Institute reveals just how much of a shift is there is at the checkout and who is most impacted. Grace Key has the details. It looks like more of us are changing what we put on our plates because food is getting more expensive. According to the non-profit Angus Reid Institute, four in five people are changing up their menu. If you have a kid at home, a child at home under the age of 13, you're much more likely to uh, report not only uh, struggling more with meeting that weekly food budget, but also uh, in terms of doing a lot of things to try and save money or cut back, much more so than if you don't have children in the household. About 62% of those surveyed are eating out less to save money. A little less than half are switching to cheaper, lower quality brands. And 35% are eating less meat. 21% are buying less fruits and vegetables. Things are predicted to get worse with the food inflation rate continuing to rise, hitting 7% by spring. The jump is quite significant. I mean, 6.4%, 6.5% is the highest jump we've seen since 2009 uh, at the grocery store. And so the worst is yet to come. That's the thing that worries us. The global supply chain, labor shortage and commodity prices are to blame for the increase. More than a quarter of Canadians say supply management policies should be relaxed. Whether you're for or against mandates, whether you're for or against vaccines, it doesn't matter. As long as we know what's going to happen. For businesses, that's the most important thing. The instability is killing the food industry and making everything more expensive. For most of 2022, you can expect your 
grocery basket to look a little different, especially for low-income families. Grace Key, Global News. Still to come, sticker shock at the rental counter. Why renting a car costs so much more than it used to, if you can even find one. And startling new video shows the terrifying attack on Coastal GasLink employees. Traffic is steady over here in both directions at the Alex Fraser Bridge tonight with just some leftover volume for eastbound traffic on the connector between Knight and the S-curve. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. Featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative money together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross. Flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. Well, with spring break coming up next month, many British Columbians are planning vacations. If that travel involves renting a car, you should probably budget more. Consumer Matters reporter Andrew joins us with more on what's driving the car rental price spike and some expert advice. And thanks, Sophie. According to industry experts, a tighter car rental supply means more shortages. That might mean you won't necessarily find the class of vehicle you want to rent. And you should think about booking sooner rather than later because prices are expected to spike during peak season at travel destinations. Now, here's why the pandemic hit car rental companies hard when Business and leisure travel ended abruptly back in March of 2020. The Associated Canadian Car Rental Operators says vehicle fleets were sold off in response to the immediate drop in demand. When demand started to return last spring, COVID-related supply chain issues limited auto manufacturers' ability to fill new vehicle orders. The car rental industry still hasn't rebounded, with Zoom meetings diminishing business travel. The nonprofit Automobile Protection Association says car rental firms are targeting vacation travelers, and that might mean higher prices. There's less business out there, so less volume, but your overheads don't necessarily go down as much. The car rental companies are unable to source vehicles in large quantities at below market rates. Uh, indirectly, by buying a car cheap and selling it for almost what you paid six months or a year later, the car rental companies were getting subsidized by the car makers. And that's not happening to the same extent anymore. That will increase costs. And finally, they've had to rehire staff. Very hard to find. And presumably, they're going to have to increase compensation. Now, some advice to save money. If you're a regular car renter, get on one of the frequent rental customer lists. You can also go online and check out online travel websites to compare rates. Remember to reserve as early as possible and consider using public transit to get from the airport to your hotel. Then check for lower rates at rental agencies closer to where you're staying. And the Automobile Protection Association also says aside from peak travel periods, including Christmas to New Year's and the heat of the summer in July, Canada's car rental rates are still a good deal considering the pressures companies are facing. They're just not the great deals we saw pre-COVID. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks for that, Anne. Coming up, back in business. It was just terrible. Now it's like silence. Ottawa merchants and restaurants try to recover after that illegal occupation. And ghostly figures armed up. New video of how Coastal GasLink employees came under attack. 
Counterflow is out over here at the Massey Tunnel, two lanes in both directions, and now just pockets of volume southbound on the 99 through Richmond on the approach. Sussex Insurance are your community auto plan experts. For questions about recent ICBC changes or to find a location near you, visit sussexinsurance.com today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. RCMP are releasing new videos of the attack on the coastal gas link camp near Houston last week. They're hoping the videos will lead to tips to help identify those responsible. Jordan Armstrong is live tonight in the studio with details. Jordan, what does it show? Sophie, late this afternoon, the Mounties provided just under one minute of footage they say was shot by Coastal GasLink employees early Thursday morning. In one video, an attacker can be seen hitting the side of an employee's truck with what appears to be an axe. That same attack can also be seen from another video shot by another camera. The attacker takes a swing at the driver's door of the truck with the employee inside. In the third video, an attacker approaches an employee with a bright flashing light as others follow behind. Someone paints the side window with red spray paint and then some kind of burning projectile bounces off the truck. The workers fled to safety. The company says they are unhurt but certainly shaken. The footage, at least the public version of it, has no audio, but the video is quite clear and investigators do hope it generates new tips. Coastal GasLink estimates the 20 attackers did more than $6 million worth of damage to company property and equipment near Houston. The Mounties have not linked the attack to the earlier protests against the project. So far, there's been no claim of responsibility for the violence, which has been widely condemned in the five days since it occurred. Sophie? The mystery continues. Thank you, Jordan. All right, let's get a check of our COVID-19 numbers now. We have four days to report to you. Hospital numbers continue to trend in the right direction. There are currently 688 people in hospital. That's down 45. 108 of those patients are in the ICU. There have been 44 deaths since Friday, including three people in their 40s. We have just over 2,100 new cases recorded over the past four days. An Ottawa judge denied bail today for one of the most visible organizers behind the trucker convoy on Parliament Hill. Tamara Leach will stay in jail for now, while another key organizer, Patrick King, argues he should be released. And with demonstrators now gone from the downtown core, businesses are looking to recoup the losses from the last three weeks. Kyle Benning has the latest. The end of the long weekend couldn't come fast enough for people running businesses in Ottawa. A chance to reopen and relaunch after three weeks of the trucker convoy. It was horrible, like the, just the noise and, and the diesel and the constant honking. And, you know, I live in an old building and it's, uh, it was just terrible. Now it's like silence. A sign that the city is still on edge. Within hours of reopening, the Rideau Centre was evacuated and police called in for what they only say is an operation. One person was arrested. While police checkpoints are still visible around Parliament Hill, entrepreneurs are looking to capitalize on three weeks of lost business. The Ontario government eased public health restrictions to allow more access for businesses following the first weekend of the demonstration. And they were not able to. And, not, and then there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty around how long this would last. At court, one of the protests organizers has been denied bail. Tamara Leach, who helped set up the GoFundMe campaign, will remain in custody after a judge said she had the opportunity to remove herself and others from criminal activity, but chose not to. 
Patrick King, another organizer, has yet to learn whether he will be granted bail. Chris Barber, a third organizer, was granted bail on Friday after saying he would leave the province. On Monday, the House of Commons passed the Emergencies Act with debate in the Senate now underway. When you show up waving banners, directing profanity at the Prime Minister, calling him for, for him to be jailed, and a demand, explicitly demanding the overthrow of a democratically elected government, that is a curious way to signal interest in constructive conversation. A number of senators question whether the act is still needed, given the demonstrations have ended and the overreach of some financial measures. When you have a murderer out on bail, you don't freeze their bank account. We have people that are avoiding taxes. You don't freeze their bank accounts without court orders. If the Senate votes it down, the federal government's emergency powers will immediately be removed. Kyle Benning, Global News. And an update now on Pat King. He'll spend the next few nights behind bars as a judge decides whether he'll be granted bail. King was one of the leaders of the three-week protest in downtown Ottawa. He was arrested on Friday. Today, he appeared in an Ottawa courtroom on four charges related to his involvement in the blockade, including mischief. During proceedings, Kerry Comics, an Alberta woman, pledged to put up $50,000 to ensure King won't violate his bail conditions. She says she's known King only for four weeks. Again, fellow convoy organizer Tamara Leach was denied bail today. Police in the Okanagan are investigating the death of a man in Karameas. Officers found the victim after they were called to a home at 11 o'clock Sunday night. Investigators say while they suspect this is a criminal act, they do not believe the public is at risk. Neighbors say the area is normally quiet. Yeah, not that I know of. I think it's uh, yeah, pretty rare around here. No, nothing at all. And uh, I really think that everything is uh, handled well in that the police have said that we are not under any risk. Well, that's a good thing. At this point, police are not commenting about any potential motive or suspects. Notorious Okanagan resident Curtis Sagmoen appeared in Vernon Provincial Court accused of assaulting a peace officer. As Megan Turcato reports, before any trial can get underway, his lawyer plans to challenge a search warrant and arrests connected to the case. Curtis Egmoen was back in a Vernon courtroom Tuesday for legal proceedings ahead of a potential full trial. He's accused of assaulting a peace officer in October 2020. The assault allegedly took place just over a week after police took the unusual step of issuing a public warning involving Segmoen. RCMP warned sex trade workers not to respond to requests for service from a rural North Okanagan area where Segmoen lived, as he was under a probation order not to have contact with people who work in the sex trade. The North Okanagan man has been convicted of assault causing bodily harm and using a firearm during an offence in cases where the victims were sex trade workers. Segmoen's lawyer told the court the assault is alleged to have occurred after police entered a property, having already determined reasonable and probable grounds for an arrest on an allegation of breach of probation. But before lawyers make arguments about the alleged assault itself, defense is seeking to challenge both a search warrant and the legality of Segmoen's two arrests. Notably, Segmoen is not facing a breach of probation charge. Segmoen's legal proceedings have generated a lot of public attention since remains of a missing teen, 18-year-old Tracy Genero, were found on Segmoen's family farm in 2017. No one has been charged in connection with her death. 
Tuesday's court appearances were brief. Legal proceedings related to the assault charge are expected to continue on Wednesday. Segmoen has yet to enter a plea. Megan Turcato, Global News, Vernon. The trial of the former clerk of the B.C. legislature has wrapped up with no testimony from the man who was charged. Craig James has pleaded not guilty to breach of trust and fraud relating to his claim of a $258,000 retirement benefit, along with other expenses, including the now notorious wood splitter. The Crown wrapped its case today and defense has told the court it will not call any evidence, meaning James will not testify. Lawyers on both sides will give their final arguments next week. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum was scheduled to appear in Surrey Provincial Court today on a criminal charge of public mischief. Instead, a lawyer appeared on his behalf and the case was put over until March 8th. In September, McCallum claimed his foot had been run over by a woman canvassing signatures for the Surrey police vote. Global BC's interview with McCallum about the alleged incident is evidence in the case, which is being handled by Special Prosecutor Richard Fowler. High-profile lawyer Richard Peck is representing McCallum, whose bills are being paid for by Surrey taxpayers. In Health Matters tonight, a new study out of the New York University College of Dentistry shows vaping could contribute to gum disease. Researchers analyzed more than 80 adults, among them cigarette smokers, e-cigarette users, and those who have never smoked. Their results found after six months... Pockets of tissue that are breeding grounds for bacteria were significantly higher in the e-cigarette smokers in comparison to non-smokers and cigarette smokers. Experts found several bacteria known to cause gum disease were more prevalent in those who used e-cigarettes. Still ahead, the rock star repairman. It's a fine line between collecting and hoarding. The lead singer of an ACDC tribute band finds another passion fixing old typewriters. And from dirt to dream home, why rammed earth construction works well in northern BC. Support CKNW Kids Fund Pink Shirt Day, February 23rd. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. As more people take steps to try to be a little greener and minimize their environmental footprint, one Prince George couple is taking things even further, using soil to create their home. As Dave Branco of CKPG reports, the first rammed earth home to be built in northern B.C. is not only sustainable, it's designed to last several lifetimes. A rammed earth home is constructed of compacted soil molded between plywood forms. The goal is to make the home with energy-efficient material without negatively affecting the environment. You pour it in in the, in the layers that you can see, um, and then we used uh, pneumatic uh, air uh, tampers and tacked it down hard. Um, and then you just build it up layer by layer uh, by layer. The thick walls help insulate the interior from the heat in the summer and cold in the winter. In a conventional stick frame house, if you leave your door open for an hour, it cools off and then it takes a really long time to heat it back up. A house like this will heat back up again in, in like 10 minutes because all the heat will just come out of all of the walls around. So. The construction of Northern BC's first rammed earth home began last summer. The, the idea is catching on slowly but surely here in, in British Columbia. 
but it's especially prevalent in places like Australia. According to these builders, the home will never need painting and it can last up to 500 years, if not more. It takes minimal upkeep, if any, um, and you just keep the, the rain away from it, the moisture away from it, and it's not going anywhere. The home build follows many of the same methods used several thousand years ago. It also falls in line with the modern building codes. The goal is to have the home completed this summer. Dave Branco, CKPG News. Got to keep the rain away from it. Might be difficult in, in B.C. Long, long overhangs, I guess. Although not a lot of rain in the forecast right, right. at the moment, Christy. No, it's definitely feeling like winter or it's sort of a winter slash uh, springtime thing because there's so much sunshine. It's nice, but boy, is it cold. Uh, you um, are likely feeling that cold, especially at night, not as much during the day with the sunshine, but we are a good five to 10 degrees below seasonal for this time of year. I want to start things off with a look at some of your photos just to show you how cold it's, it is across the region. This is Kamloops Lake. They've had a lot of the lakes and through the interior melt over the last uh, several weeks, and now they're starting to re freeze. You can certainly see that there. Thank you to Sam for that one. This is Cultus Lake. As the water sort of lapping up onto the shore, it's creating these uh, really cool icicles there. And look at this captured in Alder Grove today. These are ice needles. And basically what it is, is that ice or sorry, the water in the ground uh, begins to freeze and it expands as it freezes. So it gets pushed out of either sort of little cracks in the soil and then it continues to freeze as more moisture from down below gets uh, sort of pushed out. So thank you to Teresa for that great shot. So these are the conditions right now. Uh, strongest outflow winds out through the Fraser Valley. So wind chills down to minus 10, but we're still expecting in Metro Vancouver tonight, wind chills close to minus uh, seven, minus six, even lower than that. So we're talking about minus 10 to even minus 15 at the, as the worst. These are the overnight lows. So without the wind chill, we're definitely cold tonight. So bundle up. It will be colder than what we saw last night. And during the day tomorrow, we're not going to warm up much at all. Highs of only one degree. We are also expecting snow to transition across the province from north to south. Uh, for the southern regions, the most uh, snowfall for you will be in through the overnight period tomorrow. So it's really the central interior regions that are going to get impacted tomorrow with about five centimeters, nothing too major. Although the Chilcotin has a snowfall warning with up to 10. But for our region, sunny but cold. So a high of only one degree. Average for this time of year is nine, so we're well below seasonal, as you can tell, and that continues through the next couple of days. So lots of sunshine to enjoy, but bundle up. Tonight's Central Windows weather window comes to you from Mission. Thanks to Bruce Gabriel for that one. Great shot of the snow line there on the mountains and uh, the blue sky that we enjoyed today. So nice to see the sunshine and blue sky again. Thanks, Christy. Is it ever? All right, uh, Squire joins us now with a look ahead at what's coming up in sports. Squire? Well, last night, of course, the uh, Canucks beat the Seattle Kraken. And in that game, another impressive performance from Elias Pettersson. We're going to talk about Elias Pettersson because remember the, the wrist injury last year? Mm -hmm. He admits now it was bothering him at the start of this year. Maybe that's why he got off to that slow beginning this season. All right, look forward to seeing that. Also coming up tonight, going against type. What the singer of an ACDC tribute band does when he's not on stage.
All right. Yes, of course. I can never lie to Squire. <laughs> well, you, you, I, I think you did, actually. I think you just oh. did. I'm not in the same studio I know. Them, so I have no so idea what I, what I about. asked Chris was, does this jacket work with this tie? And he looked at me for about 15 seconds and went, yes. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't. I might that have took a long time. Li- I might have lied a- with my words, but my gestures were obvious. I can't see it that well, so I'm just going to say you look great, Squire. I still think he looks very handsome. I'm very unsure about this whole wardrobe now. Anyway, if it doesn't work, folks, just, I don't know, change the tint on your TV and make this jacket whatever color you want. Uh, When the Calgary Flames bring their 10-game winning streak to Rogers Arena on Thursday, it'll be Elias against Elias. Elias Lindholm of the Flames has scored goals in eight straight games, while Elias Pettersson has actually been playing much better of late. He is starting to fill the score sheet as well. In fact, he has 10 points in his last six, but even better than that, seven in his last three. And he admits that um, his uncharacteristic start to this season had a lot to do with that wrist injury from last season. Coming into the season, it was it was a little weird. I still, uh, still had my wrist taped. Uh, I'd played 26 games last year. I missed didn't play a game for I don't know eight months or something, so it definitely was a slow start for me. Um, so I mean, it took me way longer than I wanted it this season, but I feel now in the last couple of weeks I've played like myself again. Maybe things are going more my way now, um, so that definitely helps. But um, I mean, I definitely find my game again, and that makes it uh, uh, way more fun. The Vancouver Whitecaps have signed number one keeper Thomas Hassall to a new contract that runs through 2023, and there are team options on this contract in 2024 and 2025. Hassall, of course, was given the net after Max Crapo asked for a trade and was dealt to LAFC, which was unexpected. Let's be honest. There's no doubt the Vancouver Whitecaps were not planning on Hassall being the number one guy most nights this coming season. But... He is someone the Whitecaps say they're very comfortable with as the number one goalkeeper, and giving him this contract shows they aren't just saying that. He has started 15 MLSL, MLS games, make that in the last two seasons, so he does have experience going into this year. And Vanny Sartini says he's become a number one goalkeeper through his work ethic. I think he improved a lot in the last uh, year and a half, uh, thanks to the work with us, thanks to the work with Youssef. Uh, he actually, I think now he, he reads much better the game. Uh, he improved a lot in dealing with uh, tactical situations, so in decision making, and also his uh, quality in the build-up with the with the feed improved a lot too. Maybe one day he'll be a Canadian international like Jonathan David, playing for Lille today against Chelsea Champions League action. Still N'Golo Conte now offloads Pulisic. That's a nice goal by the American Christian Pulisic, and Chelsea wins it two nothing in the first leg of this series. Well, COVID, of course, turned a lot of people into either part-time or full-time homebodies and hermits. A lot of us haven't gone to the places we used to go for a couple of years now. And in the case of folks who love seeing the Vancouver Canadians play at Nat Bailey Stadium, it's been almost three years. But this year, the doors will be opening, barring something unforeseen, and minor league baseball will be back in a major way. Bailey Stadium is one of the prettiest little ballparks in North America, but it's also been one of the loneliest diamonds 
no professional baseball, and just as importantly, no fans in the grandstands since the 2019 season. But come April, it's game on for the Seas and their fans. It's been a while. It's been, as we would say back home, it's been a hot minute. Um, I think it's been two plus seasons. So I think our last date here was, what, late August, early September of 2019. So we're excited. Looking forward to April 19th will be our home opener. Tickets go on sale this Saturday. When the first pitch is thrown at the home opener, 963 days will have passed since the Seas last stepped foot at the NAB. A lot has changed since then. You'll see a vastly different roster and also a deeper one full of the Toronto Blue Jays' top prospects. The Seas have also moved up a few rungs in the caliber of ball being played. Yeah, we moved up by actually two levels. So instead of playing uh, 38 home games, we'll play 66. We'll start April. Uh, it's a full season. It's high A, and uh, we'll end up playing 132 games this summer. But again, season will start in April. I know fans aren't quite used to that. We'll go through that together this year, figure that all out. But uh, we're we're expecting a, a big season. With 66 home games at the Nat, the Seas box office has plenty of tickets to sell. As you can see, the demand is clearly there. Nooners are back on the schedule, as well as afternoon baseball on the weekends. Bring on the sunshine, bring on the ball, because baseball's back at the Nat. People are excited. I mean, our our numbers from season tickets are up as the, compared to they were in 2019. Our corporate partnerships are up compared to they were in 2019. I mean, I think people are excited. I think people are excited to, for a summer to get outside to try to get some normalcy back in their lives. And what's more normal in Vancouver in the summer than coming to a Seas game at the Nat? Jay Janower, Global Sports. The very first Vancouver Canucks team was 1945 in the Pacific Coast League and a 19-year-old rookie on that team was Ernie Doherty. Ernie Doherty has passed away and was announced by the Canucks Alumni Association. A great man, BC Sports Hall of Famer, part of the uh, BC Hockey Benevolent Association since way back in 1960. There he is as a young guy with the C wearing the Canucks old uniforms. Yes, he was the last original Vancouver Canuck, the old Pacific Coast Hockey League, and he was on that Canucks team in 1945, and there he is celebrating his 97th birthday not too long ago. So, we have lost a good one in Ernie Doherty. Sure have. Good to see him getting a, that kind of applause from the crowd. He too. got a lot over the years. You bet. Very beloved in the hockey community. Thanks very much, Squire. By the way, I did get a viewer comment that Chris's tie looks better than Squire's. Sorry, Squire. <laughs> That's okay. Oh. That's okay. You can't win them all every day. You can't <laughs> always win the fashion battle every day. We'll see how it, it goes tomorrow. It's a blood sport, Squire. <laughs> yeah, it is. Sport. It is. Well, tomorrow I'll come back even better. <laughs> Thanks, Squire. Up next, a local rock singer playing against type with a side hustle that's right on key. Well, the pandemic has really changed the way that we live and how people make a living in some cases. Tonight, a rock singer trying out a new tune on an entirely different set of keys. Jay Durant reports in This Is BC. These are the two worlds of Brendan Raftery, supercharged rock singer by night. Mild-mannered typewriter repairman by day. His new interest was sparked last year when his daughter noticed this relic sitting on the shelf that Brendan had kept for the past 23 years. 
Dad, what is that thing? <laughs> how do you plug it in? And uh, does it work? Since then, he's taught himself how to bring them back to life, saving all kinds of models from the scrap heap. This one's Russian German. Oliver number five, it's from 1913. My favorite is the uh, Torpedo 18B. Channeling his Brian Johnson and Bon Scott helps pay the bills. He also works for Hewlett Packard. But Raftery has sold close to a dozen of these now and has started up old school typewriters. It's a fine line between collecting and hoarding. So I'm just calling it a business. He'll sell to writers, collectors, or maybe anyone looking for a unique piece of art for the Homer office. This tribute to Tom Hanks just finished top three in the typewriter beauty contest at a prestigious competition in the U.S. And yes, that is a real thing. This one is in Hebrew, and it writes from right to left. Life will get busy again as BCDC starts booking more gigs, but Brendan will find time for both. He's already got his bandmates on board. We had a practice a few months ago, and I brought them all their own typewriters. I was like, I mean, I had a few. <laughs> now he just has to work on a jingle for his new company. Uh, you know, we could sort of morph an ACDC song into typewriters, and, you know, that's, that's coming now that you put that in my head. Those about to type. <laughs> we salute you. Jay Durant, Global News. And they're good, too. If yeah. you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. For those about to type, we salute you. <laughs> what was the brand you first learned on? It was all of Eddie and radio. Yeah. yeah. And we used to have a guy named Jim Benny who was around radio for years, and when he typed, it sounded like a drum solo. He hit the <laughs> thing so hard. Like, <laughs> two finger typist? Two fingers straight down. I never saw anybody. <laughs> You're kind of like that, too. I've heard you yes. type. All right, thanks for watching, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, all.